So if you have your Bibles, open up, please, to Psalm 21. And uh, again, as I always say, I'm enjoying the study in Psalms. Uh, hopefully you are too. Um, David gives us insight into a lot of different things that he goes through and as a... Uh, just an expansion of a lot of things that we go through, too. A little intro to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 can be divided into two parts. The first part is a praise and thanksgiving for past victories. Part two is a prayer in anticipation of future victories. And David is speaking on behalf of the military leader and is addressing God as the source of the military victories. So, so this is a psalm, you know, uh, speaking in military terms, David is, a, is addressing God on behalf of the military leader, and he's thanking him, thanking God for the victories. And we can apply these, it doesn't have to be a military victory, but any of the victories, any, things that, any of the things that we've come through in our walk, and that we've seen God's hand upon us, and we've seen His blessing upon us, we can go back, we can look back, and we can thank Him for those things. We should thank Him for those things. We should never forget the things that God has taken us through and brought us to this place. We know that we're going to fall into trials in the future. We know that we're going to have battles in the future. So just to encourage us for those upcoming battles, we need to always remember those things that God's taken us through. And then the second half is a prayer just anticipating God's future victories, saying, God, we know what you've done for us in the past. We trust you. We believe in you. We've seen your hand upon the situations bringing us through, and we believe and we trust that in the future you'll do the same for us. So, um, I, I, even though it's related to military battles and military victories, we can make this application to our lives. So, in verses 1 through 3, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice! You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Just stop there for a second. Obviously, he's talking the request of the lips of the leader are requests for victory, for military victory. So... David is saying there, God, you've given him the, the, his heart's desire. You've, you've brought him to victory on the battlefield. You have not withheld that request from him. And then in verse 3 it says, For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. I love this, these three verses. It just it gets us to start to think about whose battles these really are. Because... David's addressing God on behalf of the military leader. We need to be addressing God in the midst of our battles, understanding that the battles are the Lord's. If we are submitted to Him, if we yield to His leadership, it's the Lord's battle. We don't have to fight the battles. All we need to do is put our faith and our trust in Him for Him to take us through. And we should give thanks 
from our past victories, knowing that they come from God. And again, we read about his heart's desire. And this isn't for the plasma TV. This isn't for the Cadillac. This is the heart's desire of a man whose heart is set on those things of God, whose heart is aligned with God's heart. And God will bring your heart's desire to you. Verses 4 through 6, it says, He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. You have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. So we see here that the blessings were just poured down upon this military leader. And David is going before God, before the throne of God, and just expressing that gratitude for the answered prayer, for the salvation, for the blessings that God has poured down upon him. And then he says, you have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. That should be us. As we are in the presence of God, as we stay focused on him, as we, as we remain close to him, as his presence is made apparent in our lives, that should bring us joy. That should bring us pleasure. And we don't need anything else. Verse, uh, verses 7 uh, through 12. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You will make them as fiery as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. So, now David, as he's thanking God for the military victory, he's also understanding that the enemies of, of the military leader, the enemies of David, and the enemies of us are also the enemies of God. It says in verse 8, your hand will find all your enemies. He's speaking about God's enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you, God. You won't, you won't let the wicked... You won't let those who blaspheme your name, God, go unpunished. And then we start to see a little shift in tone. We start to see a little messianic tone that's applied to these verses. It says there in verse 11, For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. So again, we see, we see how David is just... Thanking God, expressing his gratitude for the military leader, but also understanding that men, when they go against us, they're going against God. When they devise evil against us, they're devising evil against God. But we can be encouraged when we realize that the future King of Kings will make things all, all things right at his coming. You know, we just read in Titus this past week 
in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, as verse 11 in this psalm can be applied to the evil plot devised against Jesus, we also have hope, knowing that He will return. God will be victorious. Satan thought that he won at the cross. But victory was achieved at the cross. So we have hope no matter what we're going through. And that's that shift, that, that little messianic tone to that part of the psalm. Speaking of messianic psalms, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a lament. We've read many uh, lamentations. Turn to praise and thanksgiving. And in the middle is prayer. And I think, again, that's a lesson for all of us. No matter what we're going through, we, we may be under great trials. We may be under uh, uh, great uh, difficulties. But we commit it to the Lord in prayer. And He brings us through and it turns our lament and our discouragement to praise and thanksgiving. So that, that's how that mood shift occurs. And although this psalm was applied to David at the time it was written, it's clear as we go through this psalm that it should be considered one of the most obvious messianic psalms. As a matter of fact, the New Testament contains 15 quotes or allusions to this psalm alone. So we can see how it shifts back and forth. Some early church leaders have actually called this the fifth gospel, Psalm 22. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and forth from the Psalm to the New Testament so you can see the references and the, and the Messianic applications of the Psalm. So in verse 1, To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a Psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Right off the bat, we can we see the messianic application of this psalm. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. It says, "In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He quotes this psalm from the cross. David is speaking of hopelessness. In the strongest sense, being forsaken is like being abandoned. Jesus felt pain, physical pain, physical suffering on the cross. But he quotes Psalm 22. He fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 22. And he also feels the emotional pain. The emotional pain of separation from the Father. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Not only did Jesus take the sins of the entire world upon Him on the cross, He became sin. When all of the sins of the world were placed on Jesus, he experienced the same separation from God that we do when we sin. 
And for Jesus, I believe that was the ultimate suffering. The physical was one thing. But that, that separation, when sin was placed on Jesus, the, the, the weight of the sin of the entire world was placed on him at the cross, I believe that was when he really suffered. And he closed Psalm 22. Verses 2 through 5. Through five. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So, you know, see, David starts off with, uh, in, in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling abandoned. In verse 2, I cry out to you in the daytime and in the night. And he feels that God is not there, is not present. But then it shifts. And he sees and he understands. I love this about the psalm. Even though David isn't necessarily hearing God's response to his prayers, God is still holy. See, God doesn't change. Even when we don't sense his presence in our lives, he's there. Even when we don't understand the answers, he's still holy and righteous. It says in verse 3, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. You start, sometimes if you're so dejected and so downtrodden and so under the weight of trials that you just have to break out of it. And I think that's what David is doing here. He's breaking out of that dejection and he's understanding, God, you're still holy. I trust you. I believe. God is God, regardless of his response to our prayers. Because we don't know his mind. His ways are higher than our ways. We can't allow our idea of what God should do in a particular situation to cloud our view of who he is. He remains holy. He remains righteous. Back to Psalm 22. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now, are those hymns and he's all capitalized in your Bibles? He trusted in the Lord. He, Jesus. Let him rescue him, Jesus. See the messianic application. And we're going to go to the New Testament and we're going to see how it applies. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joy. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. He's, 
in a really bad state. My strength is dried up like a potion, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. David shifts back and forth between his own sufferings at the hands of evil people and the suffering of Christ at the hands of his enemies. In Matthew 27, why don't you go to Matthew 27 with me? We're going to read from verses 39 through 44. We see how David is speaking of his own suffering, his own trials at the hands of evil people. And now, look, look in Matthew 27, 39, what it says about Jesus. It says, And those who passed by him blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. The same type of mocking that David is speaking of, Jesus endured on the cross. He trusted in God, verse 43. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So David shows how evil people, people that are against God, can ridicule him. Certainly we've experienced that as believers from time to time. People might mock us for our faith, mock us for being in church on a Wednesday night when we could be doing a lot of other things, ridicule us. As believers, we experience that. And we, when we suffer trials, people can ask us, so where's your God now? Let Him save you if you call yourself a Christian. I'm sure a lot of us have heard that. Same thing here. And Jesus experienced similar ridicule. Back to Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We can see, again, that perfect application to Jesus. Turn in the New Testament, go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. And we can see that in Psalm 22, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. We can just imagine, we can picture Jesus on the cross. So in verse 23 of John 19, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Then they said, therefore, among themselves, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, 
whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. The soldiers were fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. Amazing. Amazing. Anyone asked you, is the Bible really the Word of God? Yes. Yes. Prophecy always will prove the Word of God true. So we, we see that right there. Back in Psalm 22, as we go back and forth, verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So we see the shift completed. We see David's lament completely turned to joy as he receives an answer from the Lord. And we shouldn't be ashamed to testify of the awesomeness of God in public. And that's what David is writing here. He says, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. So don't be ashamed. It should bring forth, when God answers our, our prayers, it should bring forth praise and worship. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. And then, closing up in, in Psalm 22, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. So again, declaring God's righteousness even to the next generation. And that's that should be our legacy. Those who are believers should recite the things that God has done, the faithfulness of God to our children, to our grandchildren. Any opportunity that we have to pass the legacy of Christianity down to the next generation. And that's what David is saying. Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I'm going to read for you something that um, I got in this month's uh, In Touch. I don't know if any of you guys get this from uh, Charles Stanley. It's a monthly devotional. And um, I just got it in the mail 
yesterday, and I didn't realize that he speaks about Psalm 23. So I just want to hear. I just want you to hear what Charles Stanley has to say. It says the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. This month is a good time to ponder exactly what the opening verse of Psalm 23 means for us in 2012. In a matter of days, Christians around the world will celebrate Easter with worship and thanksgiving for Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and for the empty tomb of his resurrection. But Jesus also said something important for our consideration in this time of remembrance as we think about his death on the cross. He explained, My sheep shall hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. John 10, 27. In other words, to be a part of Jesus' fold, we must follow him. This begins with receiving him as Savior, but then it continues with a very costly commandment. The Lord said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. That is, if we choose to heed the Savior's call, if we would like to be among the good shepherd's sheep, we will, like him, take up a cross. We must deny ourselves whatever causes us to wander away from his loving care. You know, Sheep wander. We wander. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, the Bible says. We're likened to sheep so much in the scriptures, we could almost get a little insulted if we understand that sheep aren't that smart. They wander a lot, and they need a shepherd to keep them in line. But I think for us as believers, that's a good place to be. Right in the heart of the shepherd's care, right under the shepherd's crook, right under his staff, right close near the shepherd. That's where we want to be. So as we go through Psalm 23, think of yourself as the sheep and think of Jesus as the shepherd. In verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. With God as our shepherd, we will never be in need of anything. We may be in want or desire of many things in this life. But need, no. The shepherd will always satisfy all of our needs. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Now, think about that. Jesus is saying, I am your good shepherd. I'm not that bad shepherd who's just doing it for the money. I love you. I own you. Which is a good thing. I will protect you. It says, following in verse 13 of John 10, the hiring flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the fathers, 
As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it twice. I, I lay down my life. I give my life for the sheep. That's the kind of shepherd that we want. I would gladly be a dumb sheep under the care of that kind of a shepherd. We should all desire that. The job of the shepherd is to protect his sheep from all enemies. And then, in verses 2 and 3, he says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So now we see more characteristics of the good shepherd. He leads us and directs us to good places. His guidance is always towards peace and kindness, represented by the still waters. When we're disheartened, he'll encourage us. He restores our soul. And he leads us toward and into a holy life. And why does he do all of that? He says, for his name's sake, it's all to bring him glory. See, Jesus leads us and guides us as a good shepherd does in order for him to be glorified by our lives. As we live holy lives, as we submit to the leadership of that good shepherd, we'll glorify him as we walk. And that's what, that's what he desires. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The imagery here represents a treacherous situation. And David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's pretty ominous right there. But because of God's presence... We, we can be secure even in that type of a situation. And the tools of the shepherd, the rod and the staff, are used for the welfare of the sheep. The rod and the staff will guide and protect. God will use what he needs to in our lives to guide us and protect us. Sometimes it's the rod. Sometimes it's the rod of correction. Sometimes it's the rod of guidance. Sometimes, if the sheep strays too far, the shepherd would have to break his legs in order to keep him close. But then that's where we see that great image of Jesus with the sheep around his neck, close to him, carrying him. You see, God, God's tools should bring us great comfort. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We should... We should be glad that Jesus is our good shepherd. Then in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. God's blessings, David's describing here. Anointing of the head with oil, refreshing and cleansing. Blessings poured down by God. So plentiful they are. That we can't contain all of God's blessings. It says, my cup runs over. David is saying, if we trust God to provide, He will bless us abundantly. It says in, in Malachi 3.10, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, 
And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Try me. Test me. If I will not open for you the window of heaven, windows of heaven, and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. See, God's blessings in our life are abundant. More than we can even imagine. And that's what the Good Shepherd does for us. And then he closes and says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David refers here to the constant grace and fellowship of God. And it's something that we can just be blessed because of. Great song, very familiar for a lot of people. Um, speaking of the good shepherd. All right, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 has several different elements to it. Um, it can be described as a hymn of praise, and it can also have some messianic elements to it. It probably referred to the time when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to the place that was prepared for it in order to lead the people into worship of God. And again, the ark is a type of Christ. So ultimately, the worship would go to Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 24. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. David here speaks of the glory of God in creation. Everything that we see belongs to God. Everything in this world is the Lord's, including all of the people. It says the world and those who dwell therein. We all belong to God. We're His workmanship, created in good work, for good works. And we need to get a proper perspective on God, God's sovereignty, and this psalm helps us do that. He has founded the world upon the seas. He's established it upon the waters. His sovereignty, His power, all spoken of in creation. In verses 3 and 4, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. These verses, if you're if you've been with us through the Psalms, very similar to Psalm 15, speaking of the inward motives of our heart, our desire to please God. And our desire to please Him is what allows us to be in His presence. Said, so who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? Those are questions that we need answered. And David answers them. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. So again, we see a desire to honor God, to glorify God, to trust in the Lord, to be pure, to have clean hands, to be righteous, to think of godly things, not to allow temptations to overcome us, those, all of those things will allow us to be in His presence. In verse 5, He shall receive blessing from the Lord, 
and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. This is the result of a clear conscience before God. God's blessings coming to those who seek him and honor him. Verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then verses 9 and 10, it repeats. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. This poetic language that David uses indicates that even the gates of the city need to recognize God's glory and His strength. And in doing so, they open wide for, for the King of glory. I, I just think of, when I, when I read that, I think of the verse in Revelation 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. So, as David uses that poetic language to say, open your doors up. Allow in the King of glory. I can see as believers that we need to open wide for Jesus in our lives. We open the door of salvation up when he knocks on the door of our hearts. We allow him in in order to be saved, which is a very wise thing to do. And then we continue to open the doors of our lives up so that, this is the tough part, so that Jesus has access to all of the areas of our life. So that there are no closed doors in any part of our hearts. So that everything is open to Him. So that we swing the doors open and allow the King of Glory to come in unashamed, not concerned about what He may find behind door number one or door number two or that door that's always closed. Swing them wide open. Allow the King of Glory to come in. Allow the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty. Beautiful poetic language. Give God access to all the areas of your life and see the blessings that come from that. And then in Psalm 25. This psalm is a plea for deliverance and forgiveness. David asks for protection, guidance. It's a, it's a prayer. He asks for forgiveness and preservation. He asks for salvation and encouragement in distresses. So, all of those things we can relate to. Verse 1, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Right there, David's declaration of full and complete dependence on God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. My entire being, Lord, I lift up before you. I want to put my faith and trust completely and fully in you, Lord. And then he goes on, and he, and, he, and he goes even further in verse 2 and 3. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. 
Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So, we see the, the, the comparison and the contrast there. I'm not going to be ashamed, God. I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. And I know that you're blessed. And I know that you'll bring victory. And if I wait upon you, God, I know that you're faithful. And that's the most difficult part of our relationship, is waiting upon Him. Imagine waiting for somebody or something and them not showing up. How, how dumb you feel sometimes. You just waited and waited and waited for hours. You made a special. Waiting for the cable guy. Then you wait. You wait. And you feel really stupid. You wasted your whole day. And you never came. We should never be ashamed to wait on the Lord. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. He's going to be faithful. You know, fix our cable. He'll be faithful. But let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. And God's righteous. He won't allow us to be ashamed if we wait upon Him, if we trust in Him. But those who don't trust in Him, who deal treacherously, those wicked, well, they should be ashamed. And we discussed this at the Men's uh, Fellowship on Saturday. Those who are, have a difficulty waiting on the Lord and are slow to admit their inability to solve their own problems, really all of that is rooted in pride. We need to get rid of our pride. We need to just lay it at the Lord's feet, knowing that we aren't capable in a lot of instances of doing anything. We just need to trust and put our faith in God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And that's literally throwing our cares on God. And that takes humility. That takes for us to say, okay, I can't do this. I need God to do it. And then in verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 25, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So again, waiting all the day for God is a good thing. A plea here David makes for God's guidance. And four things that we could ask, we should ask the Lord for in our lives. And they all can be obtained from His Word, from the Bible. Show me your ways, David writes. As we study His Word, we understand His ways. As we study His Word, we become more familiar with God's ways. We Understand his character. We become, we, we gain, we gain wisdom about who God is. We grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That helps us. Show me your ways. Then teach me your paths. God's, God's direction for our life. And it's from his word. His word is a light unto our path, the Bible says and a lamp unto our feet. 
It guides us and directs us step by step as we walk through this, through this life. And then lead me in your truth. Your word is truth, the Bible says. So again, more and more we see as we daily study His Word that, that those blessings will come upon us. And then teach me, David writes, teach me. And Jesus teaches us by His Word. And then in verses 6 and 7, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness' sake, goodness sake, O Lord. I love how David uses the contrasts here. Remember this, Lord, but don't remember this. Remember your mercies, your loving kindness. Remember your goodness. Don't remember my sin, God. Don't remember my transgressions. It says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he has, has he removed our transgressions from us. That's how we want to ask the Lord to remember our sins, as far as the east is from the west. But we pray he remembers us by his tender mercies and his loving kindness, his, his faithfulness. Uh, verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners, teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. Again, we see humility is a prerequisite for God to have a, a, an intimate relationship with us, for us to learn. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To keep as to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Again, there's a there's something that we need to do there. God has His paths laid out. They're always good. They're always merciful. They're always true. And we can walk those paths if we keep His covenant and His testimonies, follow His ways, follow His word. If we're humble, God will teach us and He'll guide us. If we try to retain control over our lives, God will eventually allow us to guide ourselves. And that's usually not a good thing. We never need to worry. And again, this is something that we need to just continually have in our minds. We never need to worry that God will lead us into a disaster. He won't. All His ways are full of mercy. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. God forgives our sin because his character demands it. In order for God to remain true to who he is, he will deal kindly with anyone who sincerely seeks him. So again, we, we read the Word, we study, we understand His character more and more, and then we'll understand that He's going to deal kindly with us if we sincerely seek Him. David continues, verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He shall pluck my feet out of the net. 
Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. I love that. David says, I'm looking at you, God. You look at me. My eyes are turned towards you, Lord. Look to me. Turn yourself to me. Help me out of the situation that I'm in. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. These verses show that God will respond to those who seek Him. David's eyes are upon God, so he asks God to look upon him. But, David doesn't sugarcoat his sin. And we shouldn't either. We need to admit our sin to God, ask for forgiveness. He says, forgive my sins. We need to do the same. And that opens the door to God's continued thoughtfulness toward us. And then closing up in verses 20 through 22. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. We see the same theme running through these psalms. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So we see here that trusting in God and waiting on Him are two of the things, two of the characteristics of a true believer and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And He will always be faithful.